G'day and welcome to Overdrive, a program that proudly gives you the alternative facts to all aspects of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we road test the Peugeot E2008 electric small SUV, a refined vehicle. And with the 50th anniversary of the Opera House, we look at how a technical group took a different transport approach to cope with the crowds. It was a start of not treating the car as a god. And we talked to Alan Finlay about his transport reflections from a trip through Vietnam and Cambodia. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or the socials, podcast, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. Look for Cars Transport Culture. This program was originally broadcast on the 28th of October 2023. There are quite a number of cars on the market from non-traditional manufacturers that are giving a lot of modern features with digital screens and other technologies, but in many cases they can lack a certain refinement. Now, Peugeot's got a new E2008 small SUV on the market. It's an electric vehicle, lacks a few things I would like to have, but the prestige way in which it delivers what it's got makes it very desirable to me. Peugeot launched the E-Partner light commercial fully electric vehicle recently, but now the 2008 small SUV represents Peugeot's first ever battery electric passenger vehicle in Australia. Like all electric cars, it has a silent start-up in the morning and good throttle response. But above all, this car has a high quality of comfortable ride. It was a joy to tour in. Quietness is not just a factor of engine noise. Road noise, especially on coarser bitumen surfaces, is a very telling environment, and the pug does it well. The powertrain is driven by a medium-sized lithium-ion battery, 50 kilowatt hours, delivering a maximum power output of 100 kilowatts and 260 newton meters of torque. Not huge, but it is a small SUV with a tear weight of just 1,548 kilograms. Under the standard test, it has a rated range of 328 kilometres. The system can cope with a 100 kilowatt charging rate, which represents a medium level, with the really good cars taking up to 350 kilowatts. Peugeot says that it will take just 30 minutes rapid charge from 0 to 80% capacity with the 100 kilowatts, and five hours from 0 to 100 with the three-phase wall box of 11 kilowatts, and seven hours and 30 minutes from 0 to 100% capacity for a single-phase wall box, which is rated at 7.4 kilowatts. My experience seems to be a little slower than that, and of course, if you have just a single-phase standard PowerPoint at home that will only do two kilowatts, I think that suggests it will take over 25 hours to charge, which is consistent with its size and other electric vehicles. But while the car can take up to 100 kilowatt charging, you must find a charger that can deliver that amount, and they are very scarce. In my area, travelling a reasonable distance will only find chargers of 22 kilowatt capacities. I found to get a spot without having to queue up and wait, I would go out at night. 
So a road test vehicle of future might look at the ability of cars to play movies on their screens so you can fill in the time. I certainly saw that happening at a number of locations. The vehicle does have regenerative braking, which helps add to the power and the battery. It's not as strong as more powerful electric vehicles, so you are likely to use the standard brakes a bit more, although when you apply the brakes, the car gives its most regenerative effect. The exterior is pretty good, distinctive enough, colour grill, and what Peugeot says is FANG, daytime running lamps. They are three vertical strips on each side, a bit like the tail of a Ford Mustang. There's an e-monogram on the side to tell people you're an electric vehicle, and it has 18-inch alloy wheels. Peugeot is making a difference with the colours that they provide, some of which are really quite startling. In fact, the standard colour is orange fusion. There are a couple of metallic colours, black and grey. They'll cost you an extra $690. And some premium paints, a striking blue, which we had, a red and a pearl white, but they're an extra $1,000 or so. The interior was updated for the 2008, the petrol versions, the fifth generation, and is their eye cockpit feature. Has a rather minimalist approach, not going over the top with excessive information. You've got your choice of eight ambient lighting options inside, and the E2008 features piano-style keys for some of the options. Although just above those keys on the fascia is some touch buttons that have no haptic feel. Alcantara leather trim and technical mesh with green stitching highlights the seats. The driver's seat is further pampered with a standard fitment of multi-point massage function. The reboot space is 434 litres. Not too bad, 1,467 if you fold the rear seat down. The features list is pretty good. There's adaptable cruise control with a stop-go function, autonomous emergency braking, blind spot detection, lane departure warning. But there's not a lot of keeping you in the space. There's no lane centering. There's an acoustic vehicle alert. Now, that gives a sound when travelling at low speeds. It's an electric vehicle, and that helps pedestrians be aware of the vehicle. A vehicle distance alert, driver attention alert, traffic sign recognition, rear cross traffic alert, and a 360-degree camera. A good list, but it doesn't have an electric tailgate, and I couldn't find a head-up display, although the press release says it's there. A couple of things I struggled to use, and one is the cruise control stick hidden behind the steering wheel rather than buttons on the steering wheel. You must get familiar with that before you start driving. And while there's minimal information, which can be good for not being distractive, I couldn't find things like a percentage of charge. Now, it had the standard gauge showing zero, half and full, but I only saw the percentage that I needed to charge once I'd plugged the charging cable in. And there's no cable for a three-point plug at home, although that is an option, I believe. And finally, there's a bit of press release PR spin. They refer to the fact that it has multiple driving modes, including normal, eco and sport. Well, it includes it because it's the only ones. And Peugeot says it has a conveniently placed charging point 
on the front fender. Now, putting aside the Americanism, my charging point was on the rear mudguard. There's reference to thermal comfort, where I would have thought the word temperature would have been enough. And finally, they talk about the update for the 2008 iCockpit feature, a three-dimension display that projects information in hologram form. And they continue in saying this prioritises information closer to the driver, thus improving reaction time. Now, I might be able to see it quicker, perhaps. There's nothing I can really test, but it did take me a while to get used to what it was saying. In summary, it's a vehicle that goes about its activities with a refinement and becomes a joy to drive, even on long distances. It might be nice to have a few more features, but they will probably come when the price of batteries gets lower. Their website only gives drive-away prices, which are around $63,000, depending on which state of Australia you are in. The Peugeot 2008, including petrol models, really only sells in very small numbers, hardly bothering the scorer in a market that is dominated by MG. But I know people that own them feel special for having a prestige vehicle. This is Overdrive across Australia. Sydney Opera House has just celebrated its 50th anniversary. It continues to inspire people as a symbol of creativity, a structure to stimulate broader thinking. Building it was more than just overcoming some engineering complexities. Its opening alone was a challenge to the ideas behind traffic engineering and how strongly we held to the role of the motor car. Chris Stapleton began his professional career in the UK but came to this country just in time to help us out for the opening. He joins us on the line now. Chris, when did you come to this bright land? I came at the very end of 1971, so the construction was well underway. What's your professional background? Oh, well, I started in computer programming of uh, uh, transport modelling in London, which was, you know, the first time it was done type of thing. It was really fun. And then that got me on to doing uh, similar work around Kuala Lumpur and, and in Rotterdam and places. And then I started doing urban design, did a bit of work up in Edinburgh. So I sort of looked at a few towns before I got here. Back in the 70s then, I think the world was starting to move to, if not anti-car, but certainly challenging the role of the motor vehicle. Where do you think Australia was at that time? Yeah, there was an awful lot still of, I mean, I'd just been in Kuala Lumpur where you know, it was roads being built. Uh, in fact, I got an accolade there not that long ago because when I put the freeway in, I was designing it, I had the cheek to put in a, a bus route that came down to each roundabout where pedestrians could join the buses. And that became the transit system of Kuala Lumpur. And it also, I had the bikeway through there, which everybody thought was really weird, but that also worked. So we were starting to do integrated planning at a reasonably strategic level. New South Wales was in still the grip of car mania at the time? I think so, because... I didn't really realise when I arrived, but the um, Warringah Freeway had only been opened quite recently when I arrived. Before that, people 
were still driving down through the streets of North Sydney to get onto the Harbour Bridge. What was one of the recommendations for the opening that you made, and you're on a committee for that, that may have been a surprise to some of the people around them? I had learnt just by hearsay that uh, something had happened, I think it was probably in 1968, when it took four hours to drive home from an event where there were fireworks and etc. And uh, I was sitting in this committee. I was by far the youngest person in the room. There was people like the um, head of police and everybody ar- around, and uh, they were talking about the, the difficulty. And I, I whispered, if you close the city to traffic, there won't be any traffic and there won't be a traffic jam. They all looked at me like I was absolute idiot. And then the chief of police came back a bit later on and said, I think we should close the city. And he said, how would we do that? And I said, well, you'd have trains lined up at Circular Quay to take people out. Immediately the, um, the fireworks had ended because you'd have maybe 80, 100,000 people trying to desperately leave the city. You'd control it there. And that's what happened. It must have been a, a pivotal moment in a way, given that we'd had, I guess, fireworks in the past, as you said, and we were starting to come to grips with the fact that what we thought might have been solutions in the past were not comprehensive enough for the future? Yes, it was so funny because when you think about it, the railway system in Sydney was brilliant. It was world class and had the capacity to carry a lot of people. And there it was being forgotten, basically, for large events. And the idea that you should you know, run home at 10 o'clock or midnight on a train was just not in the calculation. Ah. It's a bit like also everybody thought that you should drive into the city, which of course just isn't true now and wasn't true then. People just again didn't realise that the, the public transport carried the majority of commuters. Sydney's public transport in terms of getting people to jobs in the CBD is one of the best in the world, isn't it? Just about, the uh, was it 86%? I think it is. Were you challenging in this particular case of trying to recognise what were the real trips and what was the real capacities and the best way to do it? Yes, and again, we had, you had this surge demand that was going to come out, which is not much worse than the peak, but, but it was a surge demand of all these people suddenly wanting to go home. So you knew only too well that the cars couldn't do it, uh, and so the trains were the obvious way. I mean, people don't seem to realise that one train is the equivalent to one lane of a, of a, of a uh, motorway. When you've got 36 trains an hour coming out of somewhere, which is we don't have, but let's say 24 trains an hour, that's the equivalent of a 24-lane highway in one direction. And, and people just don't get that. It's also the case, though, that you don't want to assume that, that everyone wants to do that everywhere, every time. In this case in particular, we had to accept, if you pardon the pun, horses for courses. What was the best way to do it? you still had the battle from the general day-to-day experience of people not understanding what the actual trip patterns were. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I, I think probably the, the, other, the second time I, I did anything like that was when we would, I was doing the very, very early strategic planning for the, for the Olympics. And there again, we just added up the capacity that we'd need to move in an hour of emptying stadiums and things, and one railway line wasn't going to do it. So overnight, we produced a, a, a bus plan, carry, I think it was about 50% of the demand was actually going to go by bus. I think it was about 210 buses an hour. And again, 
there was no way. In fact, the Olympic group took up all the parking in, around the Olympics. And then, of course, then it starts becoming fun. Everybody says, OK, I can go down to, um, I don't know, Monavale, which is one of the places we had bus every few minutes. And we can all go as a family and, and go down from there. And not have to argue or frighten or drive around to try and find a parking spot. Yes. While it might have been for the Opera House, which had a lot of radial train lines, for the Olympic Games, you had to understand what the circumstances were. Yes. And in fact, our whole planning of Sydney has tended to be getting to the CBD when the circumstances are very, very different. Absolutely. And uh, it's a bit like right now trying to explain to people that, that putting a, a transit out in the Western Sydney is to serve the people of Western Sydney predominantly moving around Western Sydney. It has very little yes. to do with getting to the, the CBD. Going back to the Opera House, Atlanta in America was to run the Olympic Games, I believe, and they built a railway line. The great problem was only 3% of the people on that railway line at the first day of the Olympics had ever caught the train before. <laughs> and so if you have a system that people are aware of and use, it can mean then that they can plan out a specific unusual event and be more accepting and, and ready to adapt to it and use what's available because they have a broader familiarity with what options are. It's all part and parcel of instilling and, and in a community sense what our transport system is and what it's all about? Well, uh, you could also spin that completely around and realise that because people don't know these things, they aren't actually participating at all. Ah. And that's even worse because you get... And that's what's worrying me, that, that we have a lack of participation of people in, say, new estates where there's no public transport. If there is, it's very limited. Uh, you have the same with with um, people not being able to cross roads because they're just old and frail and they, you know, they're not in the list of um, disabilities necessarily, but they're just too frightened to go out there. And then you have community facilities that are, are not being reached. Uh, and then it's even more basic. You're not even having, back to my serendipity, you really do need to be able to get up in, into your community. So... So uh, that serendipity has got to work at all sorts of levels, as in distance. And, and it's got to be clear to people. So back to your comment about that, it, 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 it is an education process, but it's also not even that. It's a lead by the, lead by the you know, uh, arm and, and show people what's around. I mean, for instance, the bus, the bus system, the, the, the bus... Uh, indicators are, are not very clever here, which is annoying. Uh, you mean on the front of a bus? Uh, well, that that for a starter. I mean, I'd, yes, but but also at the bus stops. Ah, yes. And, uh, most, I mean, you know, most most European places and American places have um, you know next bus in twelve minutes to Santa, next bus in five minutes to Santa, and um, and not just I. It's just not just the railways that do that. It's it's bus stops. You're listening to Overdrive. It's a fact of the media that the more distant a country is, both geographically and culturally, 
the more catastrophic the news has to be before it's reported. Now, we've all seen pictures of traffic in cities in our Asian Pacific region. What might be some informed analysis that we can learn from from other people's experience? Our good friend and traffic engineer, Alan Finlay, has just travelled through Southeast Asia and to reflect on his travels, he joins us on the line now. Alan, thanks for your time. What countries did you go through? I went to Vietnam, Cambodia and Thailand, mainly the capital cities in, in those areas. You didn't get out into the rural regions too much? We did a little in uh, Vietnam. We um, we got to the Mekong Delta area south of Saigon, so we saw a little bit of the, the countryside there. In Vietnam, was there an absolute dominance of motorbikes? Yes, absolutely. It's the most popular form of transport, not just for individuals, but for families. I think the most number of occupants I saw on a motor, motor scooter was five. Um, <laughs> uh, looked like a husband and wife and three children. How do they get freight? Is there a lot of trucks around there as well? There are trucks on the major highways and a lot of freight in the cities, the last minute freight appears to be moved by what we would call trailers on the back of motorbikes, I guess. So they actually uh, have relatively small motorbikes carrying a two-wheel trailer with some amazing materials on the back. It would add to the pollution, I would think. From my perspective, my perception is that a lot of the motor scooters these days appear to be four-stroke rather than two-stroke. And I didn't notice a, a huge amount of smelly pollution, if let's put it that way. Mm. So I think they might have uh, cleaned up the uh, internal combustion engines quite a lot. I didn't see too many electric motor scooters, although I think there are uh, increasingly uh, some of those about too. It would be a policy area potentially to push in that regard, because I presume they're not doing huge distances. Hard for you to judge, but just a feeling? Yes, that's the impression I get. Although, Interestingly, on some of the highways that we travelled on outside of the cities, uh, there were still many, many motor scooters and um, and motorbikes. Oh. So I, I guess some of these commutes could be quite long and some of them could be being used for city to city or, uh, or city to country sort of commuting. I guess the real challenge in introducing electric vehicles of any sort is going to be the charging infrastructure. I did notice some shall we say, interesting uses of um, electrical infrastructure on poles and along uh, streetscapes, lots and lots of cables suspended in the air and what looked like suspect terminal connections to uh, to various electrical installations. You think that perhaps some might not have been legal? I think that might be the case, and I think it might have something to do with perhaps uh, unmetered supply. Vietnam really has evolved strongly, hasn't it? It is becoming more, much more capitalist, and I don't mean that in a political way. It's becoming much more dynamic. Did you see that? Did you get that feeling? Yes, uh, particularly in um, in Ho Chi Minh City uh, or former Saigon, there's been amazing development there. I think since Vietnam adopted an open-door policy in, uh, I think it was 1992, there's obviously a lot more foreign capital uh, flowed into the country, and in particular in Saigon, there are now a couple of very tall, what we would legitimately call skyscraper buildings mm. that have only been built in the last uh, 10 years. So uh, this development is proceeding apace, particularly in, in Saigon, but also um, in Hanoi, but, but to a lesser extent. I wonder about the opportunity then of starting with a fresh palette uh, or just building on what you've 
you know, on the structure that you've got there at the moment. I wonder if there's room or opportunity to sort of say, well, hang on, let's integrate land use and transport now that we've uh, going into, for want of a better word, a new world. Yeah, I think it'll be difficult because um, a lot of the planning policies we, we had explained to us that the charges or the or the taxes that one pays for a, a building, particularly a residential building, are all related to the width of the building. So you see in Vietnam a lot of very what we would call very narrow but very tall buildings, uh, sometimes in an isolated location. Uh, that could be up to four or five stories high, but probably only about three metres wide because it's the width of the building that determines the uh, the taxation or the payment arrangements. Amsterdam, wasn't wasn't Amsterdam that did that? Exactly, yes. Amsterdam had a very similar uh, taxation arrangement, so they ha- also had quite a lot of narrow, tall buildings. Cambodia, was it different? Yeah, Cambodia was quite different. We only went to one city there, which was Siem Reap, which is the nearest city to the famous Angkor Wat temples. Uh, although we did do a short trip from Siem Reap to what I think is the largest freshwater lake in, in Southeast Asia, which is Ton Le Sap. And that was a quite a scary trip. That was down a, a fairly significant national highway. And uh, we saw lots of dangerous overtaking manoeuvres. And in fact, we saw the aftermath of one what looked like a very unfortunate crash, which probably involved a motorcyclist. And uh, I don't know the outcome, but it didn't look good from the state of the uh, the vehicle involved. So that was quite a scary ride. And I, I guess the challenge is that you've got so many motorcycles who are actually riding on the breakdown shoulder. But, so the vehicles travelling in the same direction try to avoid them by going into the centre of the road. And that happens in both directions. So you have uh, fairly frequent interactions between opposing vehicles down the centre of the road. There's not a whole lot of respect for um, line marking and nor is there a lot of respect for um, uh, giveaway uh, rules. It was a bit hard for me to work out exactly what the giveaway rules were, both in Vietnam and Cambodia, because um, sometimes it appeared to be that might is right. So if you were in a coach, we were travelling around for the most part in, uh, in medium-sized coaches, and the coach driver appeared to be able to do whatever manoeuvre he, he liked, given that most of the other vehicles were much smaller. We arrived in Siem Reap on the day that the new airport had just opened. It, we were literally, I think, the second or third flight into the new airport, and it's now located quite some distance from uh, the Siem Reap town. So it's a beautiful new road that connects the, the new airport to the existing national highway, we were told that it had been designed and um, and largely financed by uh, Chinese interests, so it might have been part of the Belt and Road uh, Initiative. The airport looked uh, wonderful. It was uh, very interesting architecture and it was very modern facilities. And the new road was a freeway standard road, although not divided carriageway. It was a what we would classify, I guess, as a high standard rural highway. But interestingly, it had a mixture of I guess, well-standard guardrail in some areas and then in other areas where there was still a drop-off to the side of the road, not particularly adequate provision of guardrail. Mm. And the intersection where it joined the National Highway, the new road joined the National Highway, was in fact the one where we saw this unfortunate aftermath of a crash. So that intersection appeared to have not been designed particularly well to separate conflicting 
uh, movements. Mm. Yeah, we saw some interesting, I guess you'd call contradictions of um, beautiful high standard road surfaces and good signposting and so on, and then some uh, less than perfect intersection treatments and some interesting interpretations of road rules. An interesting concept of getting some almost gold-plated solutions in a, a few places, not necessarily, and I'm not judging that country in particular, I think we, we do that everywhere, that uh, we go hell for leather on a big project but fail to see it integrating well. That's our good friend, Alan Finlay, who is a traffic engineer par excellence, who has been travelling in Southeast Asia and reflecting on the life and times of traffic in those regions. And that was Alan's first instalment of his trip. Next week, we'll have him cover the fascinatingly different approaches to transport he saw in Thailand, particularly Bangkok. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Alan Finlay, Chris Stapleton and Mark Wesley for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or look up the socials, search for Cars, Transport, Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>